So I, I guess we have to do this sort of banter intro thing again, don't we? Uh, I guess. Why are we doing this? Why are we yeah. recording this book in the first place? Why are we? I would say gluttons for punishment. No, 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 no. I think... Us I, are the listeners. Also, well, definitely. If they've been with us for 10 years, holy cow. No, <laughs> I... I, I <laughs> I, I, I think we're doing this because we'd like to be able to share this in a different modality and that someone could, could access the ideas and information that we have this, in this book in a way that they don't necessarily have to read it, you know, by eye, but they can read it by ear. Right. And so this next chapter we're doing is about social media, right? Yeah. It's, it's, you know, there's, there's all this concern about what, what does social media do? Does it affect your mental health? How would you understand its impact? And, and clearly, after, after that long run of, of COVID's impact, we've thought a lot about interacting with each other virtually. So, so it seemed kind of timely for us to work on this chapter and ultimately to release this, this chapter on audio. And as someone who does a lot of research on social media, it was a really interesting chapter for me to work on as well. So I guess I'll just leave it to you to start the chapter, John. Social media and mental health. This chapter is based on a story that appeared in the Washington Post by Linda Searling. The big number, three or more hours a day of social media use hurts youth's mental health. This appeared in 2019, September 27th. The scientific journal citation associated with this particular story was by Ream and colleagues in 2019, Associations Between Time Spent Using Social Media and Internalizing and Externalizing Problems Among U.S. Youth that appeared in JAMA Psychiatry, 2019, September, Volume 11. In three, two, story summary. We are somewhat obsessed with social media, whether it's the newest meme, the latest TikTok dance craze, or how much time we're spending on Facebook or Instagram. We think about it a lot, but that might not be all that healthy. Researchers have been working to understand the effects of social media use on our well-being, with many taking a specific focus on how social media use impacts the lives of children and teenagers. This Washington Post story is about a study that suggests more than three hours a day spent on social media is unhealthy for young people. The study sought to understand the impact of social media use on mental health of young teenagers, with reporter Linda Searling pointing out that the research suggests too much use might be correlated with negative mental health outcomes. However, Searling tells readers that researchers aren't quite sure what the mechanism is that might lead to those outcomes. What ideas will you encounter in this chapter? Defining and measuring variables are an important part of research. When and how data are collected are important for drawing conclusions about populations. Describing variables includes central summaries, variation and shape. Risk comparisons can be defined in different ways. Uncertainty should always be reported along with the best estimates. It's important to adjust analyses for all the variables that might impact the response. Causality in relationships is critical to evaluate. Scientific papers can be read strategically and key features extracted. News coverage can range from simple summaries of results to full expositions and explorations. What is claimed? Is it appropriate? The headline claims that social media use hurts the mental health of youth. This suggests that an activity, social media use, causes an adverse outcome, decline in mental health. This title highlights a common challenge of needing to unpack the implications of story headlines and later story components. One question you might ask is whether the term hurts, as used in the headline, is appropriate, given the information that follows in the story. And if it does not, then it's worth considering what may have driven a news outlet to characterize information in a particular way. Is it a problem of oversimplification, or did the headline writer not understand the story or the study? Ideally, as you read the story, it should become clear whether the headline was appropriate or not. It is always worth recalling that the story writer and the headline writer are rarely, if ever, the same person. Finally, consider which of the two headlines would have enticed you to read the story.
Three or more hours a day of social media use hurts youth's mental health. Three or more hours a day of social media use might be associated with youth's mental health, but we're not exactly sure why. Causality. Does some response, here mental response, result as a consequence of some activity, here social media use? Reverse causality. What if the activity, social media use, is a consequence of the response, mental health condition? Here, what if mental health status causes social media use instead of the other direction? Who is claiming this? This was a health story in the Washington Post based on a scientific paper published in one of the journals of the American Medical Association. An important distinction between the story can be observed in the headline of the story and the title of the scientific paper. The story headline implies that excessive social media use hurts mental health, while the scientific paper headline uses the word associations. Causality is suggested in the news story, while more caution is embedded in the scientific paper title. This difference is not an indictment of the inability of scientists to make definitive statements or the boldness of journalists and editors to do so. This reflects a different set of priorities in summarizing the work. The scientists have the time and page space to describe a story with nuance and caveats to an audience that would expect no less, while journalists and editors have much less space to attract and engage casual readers. Why is it claimed? Data were collected on mental health, social media use, and other variables that might be associated with mental well-being. A statistical model was fit, suggesting that the odds of exhibiting some of the symptoms of adverse mental health increased with increasing social media use. Particular levels of social media use by 12 to 15-year-olds in the United States from 2013 to 2014 were associated with twice the likelihood of depression, anxiety, loneliness, aggression, or antisocial isolation compared to their non-social media using peers. Is this a good measure of impact? Impact is measured in terms of the odds ratio. A summary that reflects relative risk as described in the journal article of mental health problems when comparing different levels of social media use. Two questions need to be explored here. How do you measure variables such as mental health and social media use? And what do odds represent? Variables. You might feel depressed or anxious or angry, but how depressed, anxious, or angry are you? Are you more depressed than you were yesterday? Are you more depressed than someone else? Can you determine these features with a set of questions? How will you know if the questions measure what you claim? All studies require decisions about what to measure. In addition, there are often serious questions about how to measure these things. If we are measuring physical quantities such as distance or weight, then scales and units of measurement are clear. If we are measuring psychological characteristics or mental health, then scales need to be developed. A few properties of scale development and measurement are validity and reliability. If you went in for a health screening assessment and your blood pressure was first 140 over 110 and then 132 over 95 and then 120 over 90 on consecutive readings, you might conclude that their blood pressure cuff was not reliable. Yes, one of the authors did make them take measurement three times. Yes, this author did suggest that they might want to recalibrate their blood pressure machine. And yes, they were glad to get rid of this annoying individual. This digression opens up the question of whether the response is highly variable, and blood pressure can be, or whether the measuring instrument was imprecise. Validity, device, a scale, a questionnaire, used to measure the feature of interest, weight or depression, is actually measuring that feature. Reliability. The device reproduces a measurement over multiple instances. These traits or variables can be described using different scales of measurement. Some of the common scales of measurement include nominal, where the level of the scale differs in name or quality. An example would be species detected in a survey of wildlife. Ordinal, which includes all the features of nominal, but also the levels are ordered, but the differences between levels are not interpretable. An example might be a pain scale, where you define your level of pain on a scale from 1, no pain, to 10, debilitating pain. Or teaching effectiveness scales from 0, stinks, to 4, amazing, 
Arguably, the difference between teaching effectiveness scores of 0 and 1 does not reflect the same difference in effectiveness as between 3 and 4, even though there are one-unit differences on the scale. An interval scale includes all the features of ordinal, plus the differences between the levels are interpretable. Temperature in centigrade, the difference between 10 and 20 degrees centigrade is the same as the difference between 37 and 47. Finally, ratio is an interval scale where their true zero exists so that the ratio on the scale levels are interpretable. Here, zero on a scale means the absence of a trait. The length is a classic example where a 5K race is 50 times as long as a 100 meter race. Scales of measurement are important because summaries or analyses of data need to reflect the scale of measurement. For example, if you record the height of players and their football jersey number, then you would have two numbers per player. However, it would be nonsense to calculate the average jersey number. However, the average player height might be an interesting and relevant summary. Aspects of mental health in the study the Washington Post wrote about were measured using internalizing problems. Examples including anxiety and depression, and externalizing problems such as aggressive behavior and bullying. Each participant completed a questionnaire which featured symptoms of these problems. Youth with four or more internalizing or externalizing symptoms were classified as high with respect to internalizing or externalizing problems. This questionnaire had five questions related to internalizing symptoms and five questions related to externalizing symptoms. Three or fewer symptoms were labeled low to moderate. An adolescent in this study was classified into one of four categories. No problem, only internalizing problems, only externalizing problems, or both internalizing and externalizing problems. Finally, these measures are self-reported. Would a 12 to 15-year-old report bullying or other external behaviors that might be viewed negatively by others? Would you change your answers if you were asked a question that might have negative social consequence? Most researchers have a protocol to ensure anonymity to encourage honest responses. Odds and odds ratios. You often read about the odds associated with sporting events. And odds is the probability that something happens divided by the probability that something doesn't happen. Probability is a measure of likelihood that something happens that ranges from 0, 0%, certain to not occur, to 1% or 100%, certain to occur. Another word for probability commonly used in health-related situations is risk. Probability is the likelihood something happens, odds is the likelihood something happens divided by the likelihood it doesn't happen, and odds ratio are the odds in one condition divided by the odds in a different condition. If your weather app suggested that your hometown has a 60% chance of rain tomorrow, the odds of rain tomorrow can be calculated as the odds of rain is the probability that it rains tomorrow divided by the probability it doesn't rain tomorrow which actually relates to the probability it rains tomorrow divided by 1 minus the probability it rains tomorrow, or 0.6 over 0.4, which is 1.5 or 60-40, or 3 to 2, or 1.5 to 1. A few years ago, the preseason odds of Leicester City winning the English Premier League, EPL, were 5,000 to 1 against. This implied that the odds makers thought that Leicester City has a 1 minus 5,000 over 5,001 which equals 1 over 5,001, or 0.0002 probability of winning the EPL. Imagine the surprise when an outcome of 2 in 10,000 was observed. If the odds are greater than 1, then this suggests that the event is more likely than not. If the odds are less than 1, then this suggests that the event is less likely than not. Suppose you're thinking about traveling to a city with a 30% chance of rain tomorrow. The odds in this city are 0.3 divided by 0.7, or 0.43 to 1, or 3 to 7 if you'd like. An odds ratio can be used to compare the odds of rain in your hometown to the odds of at the city you might visit. Here the odds ratio, 1.5 divided by 0.43, or 3.5, implies that the odds of rain at home are 3.5 times larger than the odds in the city you might visit. Note that this is a relative measure of impact. For example, if your weather app predicted a 10% chance of rain at home and a 3% chance of rain in the city you might visit, we know that most apps don't report such low probabilities. But just suspend your disbelief for a minute and play along. Then this has a similar odds ratio. The odds ratio here would be 3.59. 
A relative risk is a measure of the relative likelihood of an event under different conditions. An absolute risk is a direct measure of the difference of the likelihood of an event under different conditions. Odds ratios or other relative measures don't tell you the chance that something occurs, only how much more likely something is to occur in one situation versus another. In the first scenario, the home rain chance 60% away from city rain chance 30%, the chance of rain at home is 30% larger than the chance of rain in the away city. In the second scenario, home rain chance 10%, away from city rain chance 3%, the rain chance at home is 7% larger. In both cases, the odds of rain are about 3.5 times higher in my hometown versus the city I want to visit. In the first case, when the likelihood of rain at home is 60%, you're taking an umbrella. In the second case, you are not. How is the claim supported? Data were obtained after selecting a sample from a population of 12 to 15-year-olds in the United States from 2013 to 2014. Individuals were then followed for three years. A population is often too big to study in its entirety. How many 12 to 15-year-olds are there in the United States? Do you even have the time and money to conduct a census of these adolescents? Population, collection of all things, people, animals, countries of interest. Sample, subset selected from the population for study. Data can be produced in a variety of ways, including experiments, samples, and observational studies. This study uses a survey of adolescents in the U.S. population. It is nationally representative in the sense it is nationally representative in the sense that each observation in the sample was selected with some known probability from the population. So what? If you know the probability that an individual was selected in the sample, then you can determine how many individuals in the population are represented by this sampled person the weight attached to this person. Note that these probability samples can involve sampling at multiple stages. For example, you might first select states, then counties, then households, and then youth from the households. The probability of the observation being selected is the product of the probabilities of selection in each of these stages. One counterintuitive observation is that the precision associated with estimates of population features depends on the size of the sample and not on the size of the population, assuming a sample has been selected in some representative way. This observation is linked to how much you expect an estimate, statistic, of some population trait, parameter, to change from one sample to another sample from the same population. So precision is directly tied to sampling variability in probability samples. Statistic, numeric summary based on information in a sample. Parameter, numeric summary of the population. Understanding sampling variability requires a thought experiment. Imagine that you were going to do study after study where you sample 6,500 adolescents using the same methods and estimate the average number of internalizing problems reported in each study. This average will vary from sample to sample, and the amount that this will vary depends on the size of the sample, here 6,500, not the size of the population being sampled. In contrast, this previous thought experiment with a smaller study where repeated samples of 65 adolescents were taken is considered. You might expect that any statistic calculated from samples of 65 would be more variable among repeated samples than the same statistic calculated from samples of 6,500. A potentially harder problem is that there may be other sources of error in a study. For example, what happens if your list of the population is not accurate? What if a sampled individual refuses to respond? Researchers conducting surveys work hard to reduce these non-sampling errors or attempt to adjust analyses when these are encountered. In addition to starting with a sample, these adolescents were followed for an additional two years. Studies that collect data over time on the same individuals are called longitudinal studies. The measurements in the first year of this study, 2013-2014, included age, sex, race, parents' education, BMI, body mass index, alcohol use, marijuana use, and history of mental health problems. 
These so-called covariates represent variables that are thought to be important and possibly related to social media use. The second time period, 2014-2015, was used to define social media use, and the third time period, 2015-2016, was used to define the mental health status. In this study, a wave is a window of time when measurements were taken, and the waves and the variables measured are Wave 1, date range 12 September 2013 to 14 December 2014, variables measured, Covariates include alcohol use, marijuana use, and history of internalizing, externalizing problems. Wave 2. Date range, 23 October 2014 to 30 October 2015. Variables measured, social media exposure. Wave 3. Date range, 18 October 2015 to 23 October 2016. Variables measured, mental health outcomes. This data collection design has appeal in that social media use, the factor of primary interest, risk factor, preceded the mental health outcome measurement, while BMI, alcohol use, and marijuana use appear only to be measured at the first time point. It would be no surprise if these characteristics change with age. Another restriction in the data used in this study is that individuals had to have data for all time intervals for inclusion in the analysis. What happens if an adolescent is more likely to drop out at later times because of poor mental health? Note that all studies have some limitations. This doesn't make the study invalid or useless. It simply acknowledges that there are a variety of factors to consider when evaluating a study. Observational study designs. Cohort. Follow individuals with particular characteristics and see what outcomes responses are observed. Case control. Look at individuals with particular outcomes, responses, and consider what characteristics they possess. Cross-sectional. Grab a sample of individuals and simultaneously collect their outcomes, responses, and characteristics. What evidence is reported? Many research papers, including this paper, start results sections with summaries of the participants in the study and summaries of the responses of these participants. A good bet is to look at the first table of any research paper to see this information. Here you would see that the participants in this study with 6,596 adolescents were 48.7% female, 70.9% white only, 74.2% age 12 to 14 at the start of the study, with more than one-third, 34.3%, having parents with an education level of a bachelor's degree or more. Note that these are the categories of race, ethnicity, and gender collected in this research. There are always other ways to measure variables. In terms of previous mental health status, the mean number of internalizing behaviors was 2.2, and externalizing behaviors was 3.2, with standard deviations of 1.6 and 2.1, respectively. Reading research. Check out the first table of the article for a description and summary of the characteristics of the participants in the study. Social media time per day was grouped into five categories, none, 30 minutes or less, 30 minutes to three hours, three to six hours, or more than six hours per day. In other words, a serious amount of social media use in a day. In the total sample, about 17% spent no time on social media each day, and about 8% spent more than six hours per day. These summaries were also presented separately for the 611 participants who exhibited internalizing problems alone in Wave 3, for the 885 participants who exhibited externalizing problems alone in Wave 3, and for the 1160 participants who exhibited internalizing and externalizing problems in Wave 3. Does this feel like many decisions are embedded in an analysis? The binning of social media time into categories with cut points of 30 minutes, 3 hours, and 6 hours reflects an analysis decision. What if the cut points were 60 minutes, 4 hours, and 8 hours? Would the analysis change? Summary statistics are presented for the numeric variables and percentages for the categorical variables. It isn't helpful to have 6,595 raw data values for the number of lifetime internalizing problems. If five or fewer different internalizing symptoms can be observed in a group of adolescents, then the data for the first 20 observations might look something like 1010225410002104223532. 
the first person in the sample reporting one symptom, the second no symptoms, and the 20th person five symptoms. Not very interesting or insightful, particularly if you had a list of all 6,595 values. A summary might be constructed, such as a table with the percentages of observations at each value or some central value, such as the mean number of symptoms. So what characteristics would you want to summarize? The frequency or percentage in each symptom category? The typical value of the symptoms count? Variation in the symptom counts? All of these features are reasonable to consider. To explore this further, suppose you generated 6,595 random observations from a distribution with values that could be 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, or 5 with a mean of 2.19 and a standard deviation of 1.57, close to the values reported in the first table of the original research paper. In this table, the frequency of symptoms, zero symptoms occurred 14.7% of the time, one symptom 26.2%, two symptoms 18%, three symptoms 17.2%, four symptoms 13.8%, and five symptoms 10%, and this was based on the 6,595 observations in that sample. In this table, the relative frequency of symptoms showed that 26%, or 1,731 of the 6,595 values, reported one symptom. The most frequent score in a set of data is the mode, and for these data, the modal value of symptoms was 1. Other common single measures are the mean or the median. The mean is the average number of symptoms observed, here 2.2. The median, here 2.0, is the score that splits the distribution of values into half with values less than the median and half greater. Thus, the median is the number of symptoms reported by the average individual, as opposed to the mean, which is the average number of symptoms in an individual. Paraphrasing a David Spiegelhalter description. Thus, the mean is the average number of symptoms observed in the sample. The median, on the other hand, is the number of symptoms reported by the average person in the sample. Percentiles or quartiles are common summaries reported for describing the distribution of numeric variables. The median is the 50th percentile or second quartile or fifth decile or goes on. Other summary values of location are the 25th percentile, also known as the first quartile, or the 75th percentile, aka third quartile, can be calculated. Here, 25% of the people reported one or zero symptoms and 75% of the people reported three or fewer symptoms. Now, there is more to the story than a single summary value or average of typical scores. Consider three hypothetical samples of size 70 of a variable that can be recorded as 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 for each of these 70 sample members. The frequency of these sample values can be described as follows. In sample 1, the count is 20 for scores 2 and 3, 10 for 1 and 4, and 5 for 0 or 5. In sample 2, there were 20 observations for scores of 0 or 5, 10 for scores of 1 or 4, and 5 for scores of 2 or 3. And finally, in sample 3, the only groups that had any observations were 2 and 3 with, with counts of 35 in those two and 0 for all other levels. While each of these samples has an average of 2.5, there are clearly very different patterns being suggested by these three samples. In that first sample, 40 of the 70 observations are 2 or 3, and the scores less than 2 or greater than 3 occur with decreasing frequency. In sample 2, the most frequent scores are 0 or 5, with the least common scores being 2 or 3. And finally, the third sample only has responses of 2 or 3. Even with the different impressions suggested by these three samples, the mean and median for each sample is 2.5 symptoms. The missing part of the summary is the shape of the distribution of responses along with the variability of responses. The first sample looks like it's unimodal, where it peaks in the center at scores of 2 and 3, and then tails off towards 5 and 0. The second sample is U-shaped, with more frequent values of the two extremes of 0 and 5, and least frequent values in the center. And the final sample is two giant spikes in the center at scores of 2 and 3, with nothing observed otherwise. All three samples have the same mean and median, but as the description previously suggests, there's nuance to the story. 
The third sample has all participants with two or three symptoms. The second sample has most participants symptom-free, say zero, or all symptoms present, five. And the most common categories for the first sample has two or three symptoms as the most common, but all other responses are possible. Beyond the obvious shape differences, the range of the middle 50% of the data, the interquartile range, suggests that sample 2 is more variable than samples 1 and 3. Another common measure of variability, the standard deviation, is related to the average deviation of scores about the mean. This measure suggests that sample 2 exhibits the most variability, a standard deviation of 2.1, followed by the first sample with a standard deviation of 1.3, with the third sample exhibiting the least variability, a sample standard deviation of 0.5. Be a critical reader. Don't tolerate someone reporting a summary of central measure without some summary of variability. It's even better if you can see a distribution of the responses. What is the quality strength of the evidence? The summary statistics, as described by John, show the percentage of social media use among all individuals, n equals 6,595, with individuals with internalizing problems alone in wave 3, n equals 611, externalizing problems alone in wave 3, n equals 885, and both internalizing and externalizing problems, n equals 1,169. Here, 8%, 571 out of 6,595 of all participants reported more than six hours of social media use a day, while 30%, 171 out of 1,169 of participants with both internalizing and externalizing problems reported more than six hours of social media use a day. This hints that the highest category of social media use is observed in adolescents who report both internalizing and externalizing problems compared to the percent relative to the total sample. Be a critical reader. Always check to see the percentage of what group is being reported. Fitting a statistical model allows for a more formal evaluation of the impact of social media by adjusting other variables. The researchers used a model called multinomial logistic regression that examined whether the odds of being in one of the problem groups, internalizing problems only, externalizing problems only, both internalizing and externalizing, changed with increasing social media use relative to the odds of the problems in adolescents who did not use social media. Reading research. Check out the second or third table in a research paper for model fitting results. The table of results in the original research paper included two columns of results for each problem group. Unadjusted analyses were presented along with adjusted analyses. In the unadjusted analysis, the impact of social media on mental health problems was investigated without considering any other variables that might impact mental health. In the adjusted analysis, the impact of social media accounting for or controlling for the impact of sex, race, age, parental education, BMI, alcohol use, marijuana use, and the history of internalizing and externalizing problems on mental health problems was investigated. Reading research. Adjusted analyses attempt to control for the impact of other potential confounding factors beyond the risk factor of primary interest, social media use here. Compare results from adjusted analyses to unadjusted analyses. These models produced estimates that, when transformed, can be interpreted as odds ratios. The odds ratios of mental health problems were all calculated relative to the odds of problems in some groups. For example, the odds ratio of mental health problems for each social media use category was the odds of problems in that social media use category relative to the odds of problems in adolescents who did not use social media. In addition to an estimate of the odds ratio, an interval estimate was reported. The point estimate is the single best estimate of some characteristic, population odds ratio here, and the interval estimate provides a plausible interval of values that reflect some of the uncertainty in estimating population features. Be a critical reader. A false sense of precision is often conveyed when only a single number is presented. Expect interval estimates or margin of errors in summaries 
and stories based on research. Let's look at one of the values reported. The odds for both internalizing and externalizing problems in adolescents using social media for three to six hours each day was 2.01 times the odds value for both problems among adolescents who did not use social media, or the estimated odds ratio was 2.01 with a 95% confidence interval of 1.51 to 2.66. In addition, the estimated odds ratios for both problems increased with increasing social media use, which is supporting evidence that a relationship between a risk factor and a response might be causal. It's worth noting that the adjusted odds ratios were smaller than the unadjusted odds ratios. Compared to the adjusted odds ratio of 2.01, the unadjusted odds ratio was 3.15, it's worth noting that the adjusted odds ratios were all smaller than the unadjusted odds ratios. Compared to the adjusted odds ratio 2.01, the unadjusted odds ratio was 3.15, which suggests the relationship of problems with social media use might be confounded by other factors. In this study, males are estimated to have half the odds of females for both problems, with a confidence interval of 43 2.61 and adolescents aged 15 to 17 are estimated to have odds of 0.82 relative to the odds of adolescents aged 12 to 14 with a confidence interval of 0.70 2.96 is a two times increase in odds of problems a cause for concern often the answer to a question like this is maybe if 100 youths with social media exposure of over three hours a day have 20 mental health issues compared to only 10 mental health issues observed in 100 youths with no social media exposure, this might be of grave concern. In contrast, if 10,000 youths with social media exposure of over three hours a day have two youths with mental health issues compared to only one mental health issue observed in 10,000 youths, with no social media exposure, this might not be a story worth noting. In both scenarios, there is a doubling of the relative risk. However, in terms of absolute impact, the first scenario reflects a more serious situation. Relative measures are often headline-grabbing and a tasty part of any story about the effect of some exposure. However, they are not meaningful unless you have an idea about how often you observe the response in the absence of the exposure. Be a critical reader. Relative risk measures ratios are often reported, but absolute measures differences are a better reflection of impact. What are the baseline rates of these mental health problems? This can be difficult to evaluate, particularly when the baseline rates of mental health problems may differ between covariates such as males and females, age, BMI, and other covariates. In the research article, the probabilities of mental health problems were predicted using the statistical model with all of the covariates set at their mean values. In this case, about 10%, with a range of 8 to 12% of adolescents who do not use social media, are predicted to experience both internalizing and externalizing behaviors, and about 17.5%, with a range of 16 to 24% of adolescents who use 3 to 6 hours of social media each day, are predicted to experience this behavior. Is this claim reasonable in itself? Does prior belief impact my belief? Confirmation bias? The study took care to look at social media use in a time period that preceded the time period when mental health was evaluated. A large set of predictor variables beyond the social media use risk factor were considered, and those included some history of mental health. We're not sure that we have a strong prior belief about the relationship between social media use and mental health we're not sure that we have a strong prior oh, let me try it again in three two we're not sure that we have a strong prior belief about the relationship between social media use and mental health status if pressed we might have predicted that mental health problems would increase with increasing levels of social media use however we also might have predicted the opposite assuming that social isolation as indicated by no social media use might have been more indicative of mental health problems how does this claim fit with what is already known? 
The introduction and discussion in the scientific paper are where the motivation for research is described relative to the existing literature and where results are compared to other evidence in the research literature. These scientists cite studies, both cross-sectional and longitudinal in nature, where social media is related to internalizing problems, although they caution that this is not a consistent result. The authors situate their own research as building on the literature about the relationship between adolescent mental health and social media research. When discussing this research, the authors note the consistency of the observed result related to social media impact with previous work. A study that observes effects that are similar to those reported by other researchers or conducted in other populations adds support to a particular theory under consideration. Researchers also note where their results differ from their expectations or from the work of other researchers, what were some of the limitations of the work, and what they see as the next research question to examine. These researchers mention the potential problems with self-reported social media use and mental health determined by short questionnaire along with other potential concerns. A question that might always be raised is, are there other variables that might explain both decreases in mental health and increases in social media use? These are sometimes called lurking variables. Does this bring up an image of a burglar about to sneak into a house? Reading research. A good introduction will summarize other research filtered through the perspective of the authors. A good discussion will place the results in the context of other work and highlight limitations of the work along with future directions. How much does this matter to me? As residents of the United States, the study of U.S. teens is targeting the youth in our country. Would we recommend restricting social media use among adolescents as a consequence of this work? Uh, maybe a couple of years ago, but we're not sure we would now. What's the relevance of data from a 2013 to 2016 study during times of social distancing and pandemic? Note, we finished our work on this book as things in the United States began to open up in the summer of 2021. It may be that social media use now is a predictor of healthy connection versus a predictor of mental health problems when face-to-face -face social interactions were possible. It's always worth considering whether the conditions when a study was conducted still apply. Our experience during the COVID-19 pandemic suggests this might not be the case. Does a study of U.S. young teens translate to older teens or to other countries? This was a study of U.S. 12 to 15 year olds. If this was a representative sample of the population of 12 to 15 year olds in the United States, then estimates and conclusions from this study would be relevant for this population. There would not be a debate about whether the study can be used to draw conclusions about 12 to 15 year old U.S. kids. You might wonder if social media impacts 12 to 15 year old kids living in the cities as the same way as 12 to 15 year old kids living in the suburbs or country. It may be that sufficient information is available on subgroups, but often it is not. More generally, would you expect conclusions drawn from 12 to 15 year old adolescents to apply to 10 to 12 year olds? What are they doing on social media for three hours? Or 16 to 18 year old youths, young adults? This is a similar cultural and national context. However, the generalization of 12 to 15 year old sample to populations with different ages is another example of extrapolation. It might be that different age groups have the same relationship between social media and mental health, but there is nothing in this study that would support this. Another extrapolation might be to consider if this social media mental health relationship would be the same in use of the same age, but who live in different countries. Why would the relationship be the same in Taiwanese 12 to 15 year old use as in US 12 to 15 year olds? Our suspicion is this would be a stretch. Be a critical reader. Check to see that the population being studied and impacted by some factor is the population of interest to you. Considering the coverage. The article reporting on this study is really more of what we'd call a news summary or a news stub in the world of journalism. A full-fledged article would feature quotes and dig a bit more in-depth into the study's conceptualization and findings. This piece from the Washington Post is really just a summary of the study's findings without any real deep engagement with much in the study. What might a fully reported news article have done differently? Well, for starters, it would have worked to better contextualize the findings. A news stub is a short article that gives an audience a rundown of the basic facts of a story without deeply interrogating or contextualizing them. As part of the reporting process, journalists are tasked with searching for alternative explanations for claims made by the sources they interview, whether those sources are politicians, 
scientists, or soccer fans. In fact, the Society of Professional Journalists Code of Ethics urges reporters to, quote, provide context, take special care not to misrepresent or oversimplify in promoting, previewing, or summarizing a story, end quote. While news summaries have their utility, reporting on studies and such summaries or blurbs does not allow for a robust interrogation of facts or claims. This is especially problematic if the news outlet never follows up that early summary story with a more fully realized piece of reporting. For some issues, this may not be a tragedy. However, in the case of stories about the effects of media use on mental health, this is misleading for many reasons. First, communication research has shown over and over again that media do not generally have direct effects on audiences. In the early 20th century, proponents of the hypodermic needle model of communication imagined that whatever message was transmitted in media would shoot through public consciousness, inoculating people against certain ideas. This theory grew out of studies of propaganda, produced both by people who were concerned about its effects and those who hoped to harness propaganda's potential power to sway public opinion. To sum up decades of research in a sentence, scholars have since shown that our relationship with and reception of media are terribly complicated, shaped by politics, history, interpersonal relationships, and the cultures in which we live. We do not swallow wholesale the narratives pushed in media. When it comes to social media, what we get from our experiences in them is dependent on what we bring to them, who we connect to, as well as the realities of our lives outside social media. It's hard to prove causation when it comes to the impact of media use, whether we're talking old or new media. A news article that did more than summarize findings might have dug into this. After all, the study's authors note the social media have also been predicted to have positive mental health outcomes, something the Washington Post news stub doesn't really discuss. It's worth considering how new technologies may secure additional attention in reporting. Here, the other issue with reporting on social media is the weight that is sometimes given to new media technologies. It's a weight that often takes away the agency of the individuals who use them. For instance, in a study of the news coverage of the Steubenville rape case that I co-authored with Jessica Berthesill, we found that journalists often covered the story in a way that made it seem like the new media technologies involved in the case, cell phones and Twitter here, were to blame for the assault, not the young men who were ultimately convicted of the rape. Such reporting can make it seem like users have no control over how media affect them, although the Washington Post news stub does note that, quote, The researchers in the John Hopkins study suspect that heavy use may lead to sleep problems that can contribute to such issues, increase in the risk for cyberbullying, which has been tied to symptoms of depression, and result in unrealistic comparisons of yourself and your life, to those of others seen on social media. This might feel like overreach or an extrapolation well beyond what the study suggested. However, it's also a reminder that a single study is part of a continuing investigation into phenomena. A study often suggests directions for future investigations that could resolve why something happens but rarely, if ever, completes the story as to why something happened. Other reporting on the Johns Hopkins study did attempt to contextualize its findings, even if the headlines seemed to sensationalize the study. An article in the MIT Technology Review titled, quote, Teens are anxious and depressed after three hours of social media, end quote, walked the reader through the highlights of the study and included a section called, But This is Old News, Right?, which put the Johns Hopkins study in conversation with other research on the topic, including a study which suggested that no link between the use of social media and mental health exists. An article in the Philly Voice took a more modulated tone in its reporting of the study's findings, starting with its headline, which told readers the study found that social media, quote, hikes risk of mental health issues for teens, end quote. In its first sentence, the story reiterated that the study found teens at higher risk, 
which is a qualification that seemed to be absent from other reporting on the study. It also provided a bit more detail about how the study was conducted and included a quote from the study as well. It did not provide the kind of contextualization found in the MIT Technology Review article, but it did give readers a bit better understanding of how the study was done than the Washington Post news stub provided. The Johns Hopkins study is certainly a newsworthy event, as many of us are concerned about the impact of social media on our lives. Since we worked on this chapter, information has come out that Facebook was aware that its app, Instagram, makes body image worse in its teenage female users. Short news summaries or news blurbs have their place in our news consumption diet. Not every story can be an eight-minute long public radio feature, but they do not provide much of a venue for journalists to explore the broader implications of a study, nor consider deeply other explanations or interpretations of a study's findings. Stories like the Washington Post article we discussed in this chapter are a good starting point for learning about a study, but if we hope to better understand the context of a piece of research, we should either read the study itself or seek out longer stories that do more work contextualizing the research or considering other interpretations. Review. A survey of U.S. adolescents was conducted and measurements were taken over three years. Even after adjusting for other features that might impact mental health, self-reported mental health problems are related to self-reported social media use. The research summarized in the story was careful in study design to collect mental health measurements after social media usage and to control for confounding factors. Both relative and absolute risk estimates were provided. However, if an individual only read the Washington Post article about the study, they might get the mistaken idea that the science on the relationship between social media use and teen mental health is more settled than it really is. Stats and Stories Podcasts Stats and Stories featured a conversation with science writer Christy Ashwanden about reporting about science and health, episode 81. Tai Tashiro discussed social awkwardness and relationships in two episodes, episode 50, Reading the Book of Love and What You Can Learn from Relationship Science, and episode 57, about chins and ears are not information-rich awkwardness in social relationships. Jessica Myrick commented on emotional responses to social media in Stats of Cool Cats, Emotions, Mood Management, and Cat Videos, episode 41. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.